Welcome to Navigate, the podcast that helps you safely and securely traverse the globe. Alongside travel industry experts and global travelers, we'll gather insights and advice that help you manage any pitfalls or problems that may occur while you're away from home. Our voyage of discovery starts now. Welcome everybody to today's Navigate podcast. Today joining us, we have Colin Pereira. Colin is a specialist in media safety. When journalists are operating in high-risk locations, Colin is behind the scenes ensuring that nothing goes wrong. And if it does, he's involved with fixing it. He's a director of HP Risk Management, but previously head of high-risk security for ITN News and deputy head at the BBC high-risk team. He's also an Emmy Award-winning journalist in his own right, having been a producer for BBC Newsnight, Radio 4 and World TV. Hi, Colin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ben. Nice to be with you. Thanks. Tell us uh, a bit about your role in uh, in the media organisations that you support and maybe a little bit about your background. Sure. So um, currently, I'm, as, as you said, I'm a director for HP Risk Management and we are retained, I think it's by 14 different news organisations to provide them with security advice and assistance when they are deploying their people to high-risk locations or on high-risk assignments. So that could be anything from going to a war zone to covering a hurricane uh, to carrying out a covert investigation um, domestically. And in more recent times, it's been a lot to do with covering COVID and how to go into hospitals and morgues and um, get on a plane. Right. So it sounds like, uh, you know, one of the more sophisticated and... uh extreme versions of, of travel risk management at times. How, how, how did you get into, uh, into this field? Um, well, like a lot of people, I just kind of fell into it, to be honest with you. Um, I graduated from university in 2000, and I had studied international relations and modern history, but I'd actually focused on terrorism. And in particular, I had focused on Al-Qaeda, Um, I'd studied up in St. Andrews where they had a school of study of terrorism and political violence. And when I graduated, my skill set was pretty useless to most people. Uh, I'd only studied it out of sheer interest, not because I had any prescience that something was going to happen. And I spent the first probably 18 months, uh, two years of my career, um, messing around in various different jobs, financial PR, I worked for the National Lottery in the UK for a little bit. Uh, I was a bit lost, like a lot of people are at the start of their career. Uh, But I knew I wanted to be a journalist. So I would apply every day to a job in the BBC or ITN or any of the big uh, players in the UK. Everything from dishwasher up to director general, I was applying for. And uh, after 9-11, the BBC was setting up a security team. Uh, They were recruiting for an analyst and um, I got the job. And I thought, I'll do this, this security gig for six months to a year. They'll realize I'm a genius. They'll put me on the evening news. And, um, you know, here I am s- still nearly 20 years later in security. So actually, the security part came before the journalism part or sort of hand in hand. Uh, yeah, it definitely came before the uh, journalism part. I, you know, I, I was part of the security team my entire time in the BBC, and uh, I got to moonlight off as a journalist uh, for various departments. But I was always part of the security team, so um, very firmly in the security realm these days. And if we think about media organisations like the BBC, like CNN, like ITN News or ITN TV Productions, I suppose there is the 
everyday business travel, the more benign TV production environments. And then there is also, uh, I suppose, a much, much bigger um, exposure to extreme environments than most other sectors. Oil and gas work in remote and high-risk environments sometimes. Uh, university academics might venture occasionally into high-risk areas sometimes. But for you guys, journalism, documentary production, disproportionately, I suppose, puts your people in genuinely in harm's way. Would you say that's right? Yes. Yeah, so I'd say um, probably about 90% of um, content making and news gathering is benign um, for any news organization. It's, you know, um, covering domestic news, covering um, political events, covering the economy, covering the um, court cases, etc., uh, things like that. Um, 10% of news org- organizations' content is probably international foreign news, and probably about that is 5% is in hostile environments or uh, covering risky assignments. We specialize on those 5%, um, but for our clients, they are the award-winning, or they're generally the award-winning segments. They are vitally important to news organizations, and it's what people tend to associate news organizations with. So, if you look at the average number of deployments, we probably work on very few of them um, for one news organization in a year. Um, having said that, we'll still work on hundreds of, of deployments uh, in a year. But um, yeah, you know, we specialize at the sort of uh, sharp end of the news. And um, I suppose if we think back to that corporate environment, you know, an oil and gas organization or a mining company um, or any company, their uh, their assessment of risk, I suppose, is driven by um, a commercial chain of thought. So an appetite for risk uh, balanced against uh, profit, share price increase, possibly being the you know a sort of leader in the field in some way, etc. But but that's it. It's actually quite a predictable chain of thought in terms of how they res- uh, how they will um, accept risk or how much risk they will accept. How does it work in your organization where you've got journalism uh, trying to happen on the front line to tell the world what's happening in Syria or somewhere else? It, it's not a commercial decision, is it, really? It's not balanced against profit or loss or share price. It's, it's an editorial decision, is it? So does that sit on how is that, how is that decision shared editorially? Does it sit with an, with an editor or does it sit with a team of people who make that decision to go or not to go? Or how, how does that play out in, when it comes to the news? Um, I mean... Let's be blunt, commerce does play a part in this. You know, we are very interested in what our audience want to watch. And, um, you know, we wouldn't be in business if we if we just ignored our, the audience wishes and uh, went off and made whatever we wanted to make or film the stories that we were interested in and they were not. So the stories that we cover when people are in war zones, uh, um, covering natural disasters, you know, the audience, um, they definitely resonate with the audience and... Um, as a result, advertising revenues or license fees are paid on the back of that. So there is definitely a commercial aspect to what we do. And and that's on the journalism side of things. On the content making side of things, which is sort of documentaries, uh, game shows, for example, um, you know, those are very commercially driven. Uh, They are thinking about where where they're able to sell the projects uh, and... um, 
you know, risk versus reward. Are we able to make this program or is the situation too uh, risky on the ground? So there is a lot of financial, um, there is a lot of financial thoughts about this going into a project before we begin it. But yes, the decision is made by editors whether we should be covering a story. And the way it works is generally a correspondent or a reporter or a journalist of some sort will pitch an idea for a story saying, I think there was a great story in Yemen, for example, or India or wherever it is. And the editors will assess that the merits of the story from an editorial perspective, purely, and then they will bring in the security team to say, can we do this if there is any risk involved? Um, that's how it should work. Sometimes uh, we're phoned up as people are getting on planes or arriving at the story and saying, oh, I'm doing the story in Yemen. They're saying, why didn't you tell us two weeks ago or, um, or last night <laughs> uh, before you got on the plane? But um, generally, we're involved at the concept stage. And, and I suppose the time allowed for... Uh, those two very different activities um, allows for a different kind of planning, does it? So if uh, a story breaks in, um, you know, a high-risk environment and a news team wants to go, that's an editorial decision being made within hours and there might not be much time for uh, preparation or planning. The, the story's happening now. So I suppose you guys are somewhat on the back foot versus let's go and make this docu uh, documentary in this high-risk or complex environment here and it's, as you say, it's a pitch and then there's lots of time for planning and mitigation and, and decisions, et cetera. So are, are they, they're two very different kinds of um, activity, your side, I suppose. Uh, absolutely. Breaking news is vitally important to any news organization. Uh, getting there first and getting the story accurately is crucial to a news organization. Um, so if you take, for example, the um, massive explosion in Beirut about a month ago, we had news crews um, dispatched to Beirut almost immediately as the news was breaking. Uh, we had news crews on the ground already because Beirut is a major hub for the media. So almost instantaneously, that became uh, we had to wipe everything else off our off our plates that day and concentrate solely on that. I'm interested in in smaller organisations, smaller television production companies that might do very adventurous uh, documentary making, for example, or relatively benign documentary making, but things can still go wrong. So let's say there's a TV chef and it's um, this TV chef's tour of uh, a certain part of Europe. If that TV chef uh, is uh, you know, in a nasty car accident or has their brain hemorrhage or whatever away from, uh, away from home, you've got a, a typical business, in some ways, a typical business travel um, uh, situation there, haven't you? And that very small TV production company would have to deal with that. Or if they are making something uh, more adventurous, possibly it's, it's a very complex situation they have to deal with. But when you think about a smaller TV production environment versus CNN or the BBC, etc., they obviously don't have teams like yours building plans like that. Now, how do they cope with it, do you think? Well, most content makers these days will be commissioned by a bigger organization to broadcast their program. So as part of that commission, they should be demonstrating to the commissioner that they have the correct health and safety and risk mitigations in place for any project that they're undergoing, whether that means that they're doing a game show, for example, 
or they're going off to somewhere slightly dodgy. Um, a big part of that risk mitigation uh, due diligence will show that they have the correct measures in place in terms of medical evacuation, but most importantly in terms of risk assessment. So risk assessment plays a huge part in any content making or journalism, and that's where we really start. So if a travel chef is going off on a tour to three or four countries, the first things that we will do when we sit down with the content makers is work through the risk assessment. Where are you going? What are you doing? What are the risks entailed? What do we do if something goes wrong? Um, and that is a conversation that we would have with any content makers, but you know, content makers should be doing this by themselves. So in the last few months then, since the global pandemic has been <clears throat> excuse me, a part of our lives, how have those two different activities um, coped with that? What level of uh, breaking news uh, travel has continued? Obviously some, but has that been impacted? What level of that kind of activity is, is continuing? And then also, what about the content production? What about documentary making, TV production uh, that involves international travel? Is any of that continuing? Possibly some or possibly not much. It would be interesting to hear your answer to that. Yeah, sure. So like in any industry, the media have been massively affected by coronavirus. Uh, advertising revenues are down um, and the commercials of the business are very much in flux. And we don't know how that will pan out over the next 24 months. Um, so there is that impact, the financial impact on the industry. In terms of journalism, a number of news organizations grounded their, their international operations and focused purely on domestic. So our role pivoted from you know, covering wars and natural disasters to, covering, uh, to assisting news, uh, news organizations and journalists cover COVID-19. So you've got to bear in mind also that from the 19th of December 2019, we have been covering COVID-19. Uh, from Wuhan uh, right through to this day. So we already knew a lot of the measures that had to go into place to protect people um, by the time sort of international operations were grounding to a halt. Uh, but a lot of um, journalists on the domestic desk who had never had to deal with a, a disease of this nature, never had to deal with a pandemic, we had to educate them to how to report safely from hospitals, from morgues, from people's homes, uh, how to report safely when talking to doctors. And even when you're carrying out a news conference with politicians, how to report safely from those environments. So that, that was a massive educational piece and a massive piece of, uh, sorry, that was a massive educational piece. And it was a huge change for the way the business operated and the way the managers manage their staff. Uh, we also had to put a, in place a lot of mental health support for um, all, all sectors of, of the businesses uh, because people were very anxious about what was going on. So in terms of international travel, we still had teams traveling to northern Italy. We still had teams operating in Wuhan and across China, um, India, everywhere the uh, coronavirus was. We still had teams either locally based or one that we would have moved in very carefully. But... Um, so there was still international travel going on, but it was very much reduced. If you had an idea for a 
So breaking news is one thing. The story's there now. How big's the story? What are the risks? A quick uh, but thorough risk discussion and decision, and then maybe off someone goes. If I'm a documentary maker right now, I suppose my case to um, travel the globe and make a documentary would have to be pretty compelling, right, for the commissioning editors to say, yeah, go on, up you go tackle this challenge and uh, and make your documentary. Well, oddly enough, um, people are sitting at home watching more TV than ever before. And uh, the um, <laughs> the platforms are crying out for more content and desperate to get more content in. So um, TV studios, um, content makers are desperate to get back on the road. They're desperate to get back into studios and start making films um, start making game shows, start making all the things that you love to watch on TV. Um, so it is difficult. There is a lot of due diligence being done before anything is commissioned. A lot of measures have to go into place to make sure people are safe. Um, there's a lot of complaining and griping about those measures, often by the people uh, making the product, uh, making the films, making the uh, producing the shows. So... It's, it's much harder. It is much harder than it was, say, six or seven months ago. Mm. But we're doing it. We're absolutely doing it. And travel is back on board. And I think, you know, you've also got to bear in mind the importance of the story. So, for example, in America, with, the, with Black Lives Matters breaking and all the protests that were occurring, news organizations were still pushing people out to cover those protests they were still covering them in full flow, despite the pandemic being out of control in America to a certain degree, um, because it was of vital importance to America and the globe, that story. Mm. That story you know, resonates with everyone uh, around the world, I think, and news organizations had to be there to capture what was going on. How does it work if I'm a freelance journalist and I, I suppose then, <clears throat> excuse me, if I'm a freelance journalist, and we can assume that my decisions are my own, so 20, 30 years ago, I suppose it was very different. But now, a very good GoPro camera and, uh, and a, good, uh, a good journalism head and, a, and some kind of budget to travel, you know, we can be off trying to be freelance journalists anywhere in the world in any kind of extreme risk environment. But that story might be something which finds its way back to major networks or, or what have you. How does that relationship work, both in terms of not encouraging irresponsible high-risk behavior by uh, freelance journalists, but actually possibly very much wanting the kind of story uh, images, um, uh, content that they might capture? Okay, so pre-COVID, I think it's very important for the audience to know that a huge amount of journalism that you see in the evening news is produced by freelancers. Mm. I can't tell you the exact percentage, but you know, I would say about 25 to at least 40% on any show um, is produced by freelancers. And they play a vital role in the news machine, particularly as budgets have shrunk because they are able to react more nimbly and they are able to um, cover stories more cost-effectively sometimes. But with that comes the risk as you're pertaining, which is they're pretty much on their own. They're doing their own thing. They don't have a safety culture necessarily. And uh, organizations are very cautious about how they manage freelancers, quite frankly. 
So news organizations are quite cautious about how they engage with freelancers when it comes to high-risk stories because frequently or certainly often the the big crises that a news organization will go through in a year are in some way attached to freelance production. Uh, not all, but some of them are. So managing how freelancers will engage with the news machine is, is of vital importance to the safety and security of a news organization and reputation of a news organization. So what should happen is freelancers should pitch a story to an editor and an editor should weigh up the risks versus the reward. But sometimes a freelancer will be on the ground covering a story of war or a natural disaster or some sort of major breaking story of fire. Um, and they will just phone up the news desk and say, I've got this great footage. Do you want it? And most reputable news organizations are now looking at the footage and saying, that might be amazing, but we can see you have gathered this in an unsafe way. And therefore, we can't take that. That's what they should be doing. They don't always do that. Um, but they, de they definitely have rules and regulations about how they purchase uh, product from freelancers to, to prevent freelancers and um, individuals who are just thinking about potentially a paycheck or potentially uh, driven by ego or potentially driven by, you know, we just want to win an award so that we can get a bigger paycheck. Um, they want to ensure that they aren't taking undue risks that could get themselves killed. And a number mm. of freelancers are killed every year. You must, mm. bear, in mind. You must bear that in mind. So um, news organizations have this paradox, which is they really want the content that freelancers are producing, but they want it gathered in a safe way. And uh, they have to enforce their relationship with a freelancer to ensure that it is gathered in a safe way. And that relationship is often fraught with difficulty. Freelancers are not catered for from a safety perspective um, by the marketplace. Um, news organizations and big media companies will extend a duty of care to them when they are working for them. But freelancers struggle to get insurance. They struggle to get loss of earnings cover should they fall ill or become injured. They struggle to get a, a decent medevac plan put in place. All the things that staffers will get as benefits and just take as granted that, you know, a news organization will come and rescue them if there's a problem. Freelancers have none of that safety blanket. Colin, I'd be really keen to understand um, perhaps an example from you about a trip that you personally would not sign off. Where is the line in the sand? You know, we talk a lot about the reasonably foreseeable risks and an appetite for risks and, you know, in an environment like yours where those, uh, that appetite for risk can get pretty high with war zones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but audiences don't often get to hear somebody in your position say, well, you know what, here's an example of a trip where I would be in the, the no camp or the not right now camp or the that can wait camp, et cetera. So is there an example of a trip uh, that you can give me where you could say, you know, here's an example and I wouldn't sign that trip off? Well, I might give you a slightly trite answer, Ben. I'm not in a game where I can say no. My job is to make the impossible happen for news organizations. So, and you've got to bear in mind our client base, our journalists, um, when 
other people are running away from something, from a fire, from a natural disaster. We are running into it. So we need to get the story no matter what, almost. However, having said that, we will not risk people's lives unduly or without consideration. Um, and we'll put in place the best mitigation we can, no matter how fast moving the story is or how difficult the story is. So my job is to inform a news organization what the risks are, how far they can push the envelope, and when the loss of life or, or injury becomes a really, really credible threat and when they have to pull back. And they make the decision about whether they're going to do something or not. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigate, the world travel protection podcast that steers you in the right direction, helping you explore the world safely. For more information on how we protect millions of global travelers each year, visit worldtravelprotection.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from my experts, be sure to hit subscribe or follow or please leave us a review. Until next time, keep traveling and stay safe.